Well, dear congregation, the Bible is God's Word. It's His revelation to us. As you look at the Bible, we can see, especially beginning at Genesis, going through the Old Testament, that there's a progression in God's Word. After the fall in paradise, God gave us the first gospel promise that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpents. And really, as we go on through Scripture, the rest of Scripture is building on this promise. It's showing us the need of the seed of the woman. It's showing us more of, of who he is and how he's going to come and how he's going to crush the head of the serpents. One such example that we can find of, of more details, more pictures being given can be found in the days of Abraham. In the days of Abraham, we have that well-known account where God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac and to offer him up as a sacrifice on the mountain. And as Abraham and Isaac are there together climbing this mountain, there's this question from Isaac. He says, look, here is the wood, here is the fire, but where is the lamb? And Abraham tells Isaac that God himself, or God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And just as Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac, God stops him. And God points him to a lamb, a ram that he has provided as a substitute for his son. Now as we skip ahead from Genesis 22 to Exodus 12, we see in the account of the Passover, more lambs are being sacrificed. And here again is another picture that God is giving us which teaches us how God will save his people. Well, our theme for this afternoon is Christ the perfect Passover lamb. Would you consider this in three thoughts? First, to see the need of this Passover lamb. And then second, the selection of this lamb. And third, the death and application of this Passover lamb. So if Christ, the perfect Passover lamb, we begin by considering our need for this lamb. The Passover takes place in Egypt. And children, I think many of you know how the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ended up living there in Egypt. Joseph had ten older brothers who were jealous of him. And they took him and they sold him as a slave into Egypt, thinking that they would never see him again. Well, quite a few years later, Pharaoh dreamed his dreams and and Joseph is brought out of prison to explain the dreams to him. Joseph tells Pharaoh that God, through his dreams, is warning him that after seven years of plenty, there will be seven years of famine. Once these years of famine had begun, Joseph's brothers, they come to Egypt. They come to stand before their younger brother, who is now the prime minister. When they find out it's Joseph, they confess that they have sinned. They confess their faults. And Joseph then sends them back to the land of Canaan to get Jacob and to get their families. And they bring him to Egypt. Well, as the years go by, Jacob and his 12 sons, they all die. But these children of Jacob, they keep on living there in the land. And soon they become a great nation, as God had promised. As they grow into a great nation, the Egyptians become worried. They become afraid of them. And they force them to work as slaves. They begin to treat them cruelly. There they were as slaves. Their sons are being taken away and thrown into the river. They have no weapons. They have no army. 
There is no NATO or United Nations to whom they can appeal. And from our perspective, we can look at the nation of Israel there, and they look helpless. But while they might be helpless, they are not hopeless. For God had given His promise to Abraham. He had told them that his descendants would go into a strange country and they'd be afflicted for 400 years. But then God himself would bring them up out of the land of Egypt. God is going to save them. So God sends Moses to lead the Israelites out. But Pharaoh refuses to listen. So God sends these plagues to afflict him and the Egyptians. And at this point here in Exodus 12, there already had been nine plagues. The first four plagues affected everyone. There's no distinction made there between the Egyptians and the Israelites. But in the next five plagues, God only punishes the Egyptians. And God sets aside the Israelites. He shows that these are his chosen people, his special people. But now as we come to this tenth plague here in Exodus 12, this plague will again affect everyone. We can read of this in verse 12, in chapter 12. We see there God speaking to Moses and he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So this plague is not just against the Egyptians, against their firstborn and and their cattle, their flocks. But this plague, this punishment from God is going to come and will affect everyone in the land. Now why was that? Why is this sentence of death coming to the land? We can understand why God would be doing this to the Egyptians. Why is God also doing this to the Israelites? Sometimes you have this picture of the Israelites in Egypt as a very religious, a very godly people. We look at them and we imagine how they, how they loved and they served God. And yet Joshua later will say to the Israelites, he tells them now, therefore fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Many of these Israelite slaves who were there in Egypt, they had begun to worship the same gods of the, of the Egyptians. Instead of looking to the God of their fathers, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, they began to put their trust in the sun, in the river, in the animals that were there. Not only were they worshiping the Egyptian gods, but many of them also rejected God's word as it came to them. The first time that Moses came to Pharaoh and he, he told them that he had to let the people go, Pharaoh refused and he made their work much harder. He took away their straw. And the Israelites, when they saw that they are upset, they cursed Moses. They, they wished that they had never met Moses, that God had not sent him. So while the Israelites were God's covenant people, many had rejected God. Many who were there were worshiping these false gods. And many had no interest in what God was saying. But this threat of death that we have in, in Egypt against all the firstborn, this threat of death is not just against them, but also to us. We too are sinners. We too have broken God's law. 
We too so often worship the things of this world. We lift up other things, things around us, and give them our affections, our hearts. We so often too put our trust in all the wrong places. And unless God changes our hearts, we too go on through this life pushing God's word aside. We like these Israelites, we we like what God is saying when it suits us, but when something happens that we don't like. We rebel. We harden our hearts. There are many Bible passages we can mention, but uh, two of them which make this very clear is, the first one is Ezekiel 18. And there God is telling us, the soul that sins, it shall die. That is God's sentence against sin. You also think of Romans 6, or we read, for the wages of sin is death. Every time we sin, we are earning God's wrath. We're deserving death. We're bringing this sentence upon ourselves. All of us who are here are sinners. We are born sinners. And day by day, we add to our guilt. We add to God's wrath against us. And this threat of death that we are under is not just a physical death. But the death that we are facing by nature is an eternal death. Well, so far, I I think the message so far is clear. That the firstborn of all that lived in Egypt, but also all of us here by nature, that we are under a sentence of death. And this threat of death is fair because we have sinned. We have broken God's law. We have rebelled against Him. And yet, while we deserve to die, the Bible also tells us that there is a substitute, someone who can take our place, who can suffer this death sentence in our place. Let's go on to see that in our second thoughts, the selection of this Passover lamb. As we can think of the selection of the Passover lamb, let's begin by considering what the requirements were there in Egypt. And then see how these requirements, they are pointing us to Christ and how this applies to Christ. For the lambs there in, that, in Egypt, these are a type of Christ. Now children, this means that they, this is like a picture that God is giving us. A picture that is showing us something of a Savior who is going to come. A picture that shows us something of, of His character, what He's like, and what is going to happen to Him. Well, beginning with the Passover lamb in Egypt... We can see how God gives very specific instructions to the Israelites. First of all, in verses 3 and 4, we read that every man was to take or to choose a lamb for his household. And if that family was too small, they were to choose, or several families should come together. And that together they would choose a lamb, and that would be their sacrifice. Now, I'm not sure what picture you get in your mind as you think of a Passover lamb. For some reason, as I, as, I, as I tried to picture this, I often seem to think of a very small, a small, cute lamb. But later on, we see that this lamb had to be a year old. And sheep and goats, they're full grown at a year, so we can understand this instruction to Moses and to the people. They had to pick a lamb that would be enough for their family, but there would not be any leftovers. But this lamb that they had to select, it couldn't just be any lamb. In verse 5, we read, Your lamb shall be without blemish, 
a male of the first year. It had to be without blemish. That means without anything wrong with it, without any injuries, any physical deformities. It had to be in good health. And this lamb had to be without blemish and had to be a male of the first year. This is an animal that's in the prime of its life, a picture of strength, of vitality, of energy, of health. Only the best lamb would be a suitable sacrifice to bring to God. Well, this lamb had to be chosen on the 10th day of the month, and then for four days it was to be kept by the family. There's different reasons we can think of for that. One reason is that for four days, every time they see that lamb, it's a reminder to them. It's a reminder that there's a death sentence, but also a reminder that here is a substitute. Here's a provision that God has given to take our place. Another reason for this four-day period is that this is a time in which the lamb could also be evaluated. It could be tested. Sometimes it happens that we go to the store and we buy something and it looks great. We take home and we quickly find out that something is wrong with it. Well, for these Israelites, they have four days to make sure that the lamb that they have taken home, it's, it's healthy, it's suitable. If it suddenly gets sick or begins to limp, they would have to replace it with something that was appropriate for God. So the lamb that they would find, it's a lamb that has to be chosen a lamb that has to be without blemish, and a lamb that is going to be tested. There's a number of connections we can make between this Passover lamb and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, Jesus Christ, he is the chosen Savior. In Isaiah 42, God declares, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delights. Already in eternity past, Jesus Christ was selected. He was chosen as the Passover lamb. He was the one who was going to go to, to be a sacrifice for his people. And that Christ is without blemish. It becomes very clear as we consider uh, the standard to which he is held and the length of the testing under which, through which he undergoes. Now that Christ is without blemish, this does not mean that he has to be physically perfect. But this without blemish, it deals with his heart, his character, with his obedience to God's law. Christ had to be perfect morally and spiritually. Jesus can never be our Savior if he had sinned, if he had broken any of God's commandments. And it is God's law that is the standard to which Jesus had to live every moment of his life. As a, as a baby growing up in Bethlehem and then in Egypt. And then when he moves later to Nazareth where he, where he goes to school, he's taught where he begins to work. Every moment of the day, Jesus had to love God with all his heart, all his mind, all his strength. Every day, Jesus had to cheerfully and willingly obey his parents. Every day he had to go through this life with, without any bitterness, any resentments. This means that Jesus never looked with lust. He never partook in any immoral activities. He never stole. He never withheld anything that he should have given. 
He never told a lie. And he never coveted, he never desired something that belonged to someone else. Throughout his life on earth, Jesus had to meet this perfect standard of God and to do this constantly. But this testing intensifies when Jesus began his public ministry. It is especially there that, that the attacks of Satan come, as we can, as we can read of in the, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Not only does Satan uh, rear up and increase the temptations, it's also the increasing hatred of the Jews. The Jewish rulers should should have been the first to welcome him. Those who should have worshipped him and, and praised God for finally sending the Messiah. It is these people who were among the first to reject him to push him out of their lives, to look for ways to, to accuse him, to trap him. And yet despite all their efforts to, to make Jesus sin, when Jesus is brought to trial before Pilate and before the high priest, the only accusation that they have against him is that he said he was the Son of God. Three times Pilate public, publicly declares I find no fault in this man. And more importantly, God the Father himself twice says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, he was chosen. He was, went through a period of testing. But he was without blemish. Now to apply this selection of the Passover lamb to ourselves, it can help to put ourselves in the shoes of an Israelite man in that day. If this Israelite man believed the words of God as it came to him through Moses, how careful he would have been as he went out to look for a lamb. How he would check this lamb from from head to tail. He would have been so diligent. The, The life of his child, his own life, perhaps was on the line. Yeah, as we think of our own spiritual condition, is this something that we take seriously? Our life, our eternal destiny is also on the line. If we put off finding a lamb to another day, or if we just think that we can save ourselves or, or any other religion, any other false god that we can find in this world is enough, and we're going to be sorely disappointed on that last day. If we do not take this seriously, why is that? Do we not believe the descriptions that we read in God's Word of our condition, our need for a substitute? Do we not believe what the Bible says, that we are on our way to stand before God as a holy, a just God who will have to punish sin? Do we not believe what the Bible is telling us, that Christ is a great, a perfect Savior? Maybe we're here today and we'll admit that we're sinners, but we're going to put this off for another day. Maybe we think we have lots of time to to get serious when we're older. Maybe we will have more time. Maybe today is the last chance you have. Maybe today is the last day that we have, the last day of grace that God is giving us to go and to find this lamb, this lamb to take our place, our guilt. How urgently we should 
we should be if we are still living without this lamb. But the opposite is also true. If we, by God's grace, have come to know Christ and to believe in Christ, what a lamb we have. This is a lamb that is perfect, a lamb that is pure, that is holy. This is a lamb that lived a life that we can never live. This is the only suitable lamb that we can find in heaven and in earth. If Christ is our Savior, what a Savior we have. How we should love, appreciate, and worship Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. How we should strive to live all of our lives in obedience to Him and thankfulness to Him. Oh, for the Israelites in Egypt and for us today, it's not just enough to have found a lamb. Something has to happen to this lamb. Having this lamb for the Israelites tied outside your door in your home is not enough to save you from this threat. Something more is needed. Let's see this in our third thought, the death and application of this Passover lamb. In Egypt was the threat of death. In every house, every, every, in every town that is there, someone is going to die. Either it's going to be the firstborn or it's going to be a lamb. Every household would experience a death, but who will it be? Well, in verse 6 and verse 21 of this chapter we can read, And on the 14th day of the first month, the Israelites were to take these unblemished lambs in the prime of their life, and they were to kill them. And as they killed them, they were to collect the blood in a basin, in a bowl. And this blood that has been collected is going to have a very special role in, in what happens. We can just imagine how interested the Israelite children were there, how interested... How interested these children must have been as all this is happening, especially the firstborn son. How carefully they would have looked at this lamb. How close they would have stood beside their father as, as this lamb is slain, as this blood is being shed. For those of us who have children, we can already imagine the questions that would come from, our, from these children. Dad, why are you collecting this blood? Dad, why are you taking that branch and why are you spreading that blood on, on the doorframe? Dad, are you sure this is going to work? And the father would turn to his children and say, Children, do you remember what God told Moses? God said, Now that blood shall be a token or a sign for you on your house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. The fathers who were there in that household, they would would have taken their children. They would have pointed to the blood and said, when we take refuge behind the blood, there is safety. Our lives can be spared. We also know that this applied blood was effective. The last two verses we read, verses 29 and 30, We can read there how at midnight the Lord came and how he smote all the firstborn in the land. 
that there was a great cry that went up among the Egyptians as in house after house, parents find their firstborn son dead. Yet we do not read of any, any weeping, any crying among the Israelites. All these things that were true of the Passover lamb are also true of Christ. It's not enough for Christ to have lived a perfect life. It's not enough for him to always have reached and maintained that perfect standard of God's law. If Christ is going to be our Savior, his blood had to be shed. He too had to die in the place of sinners. He shed his blood for a very particular reason, as we can read as, as he tells us so in the institution of the Lord's Supper. And there in Matthew he says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission or for the forgiveness of sins. And also it's true of Christ's blood that there is life when one takes refuge in the blood of the Lamb. As God gave these first Passover instructions to the Israelites, he makes it very clear that this Passover celebration was to be held year after year to remember God's great deliverance. As I was preparing this message, one commentator makes a number of interesting connections to the annual Passover celebration and the death of Christ. And he points out that on Palm Sunday, this, that day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, this day when the crowds were cheering and rejoicing, was also on that day that the herds of lambs were being led into Jerusalem for the, the Passover that was to be celebrated. And on Good Friday, in the hours before these lambs were to be killed in every house in the city, there we can see the Lord Jesus Christ crucified on the cross. Jesus Christ, that great Passover lamb, that great fulfillment of the picture that we have in the Old Testament. He had come. He had come and he is there shedding his blood. He's there laying down his life to take the place of sinners. How sad it is that for so many of the Israelites who were there, they missed it. They had rejected the true Lamb of God. And they were instead busy with, with these physical lambs, these pictures that were pointing to Christ. Unbelief had so blinded their hearts and their minds that they missed the real thing. They missed Christ who was in their midst. They had rejected him. In Egypt, the blood on the doorframe was effective. When God saw the blood, he passed over. We also know from the New Testament that this blood of Christ is effective. We can read of this in Revelation 7. And there it says of believers before God's throne, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is through the shed blood of Christ, it's through this Lamb of God that our sins can be forgiven, that our, our guilt, our shame, our filthiness can be washed away. It's through this blood of the Lamb that we can come to stand before God, pure and white. We too can stand before God without spots and blemish because of what Christ has done. 
Congregation, have you gone to God confessing your sins? Have you gone to, to God confessing that you need a substitute, that you need a lamb to take your place? Maybe you have often prayed to God, you've often told God your sins and you've asked that he would forgive you. You've asked him to change your heart and yet you go on through this life and your life seems the same. Maybe it seems as though your prayers to God are going unanswered. What should you do then? I remember a time in my own teens when I was convicted and, and struggling with sin. And the, the roommate I was living with said to me, why don't you pray the sinner's prayer? This you know, short prayer you can often find in, in tracts and in Bibles. This prayer of confessing sin, of, of confessing your need for your Savior. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And I prayed this prayer, but nothing happened. Some of you may have gone through the same struggles where, where you pray to God, but your life is the same. Maybe for a few days you can clean up your act a little. Maybe for a few days you have some hope, but then yet you go on without hope and without comfort. Does it mean there's necessarily something wrong with the prayer you prayed? In the New Testament, you can read of that public in the temple. And he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he read that Jesus said he went home justified. My point is this. Just because you prayed once, you've even prayed many times. If there's no fruit, no evidence in your life that your sins have been forgiven... If no, as there's no evidence in your life that you are trusting in Christ alone to save, if there's no evidence that you love Christ, that you begin to, to grow in your hatred against sin, if we do not see these fruits in our lives, then we have no ground to believe that we are saved. The solution is not to sit back and wait. It's not to give up but to continue to go to God in prayer, to cry out to God and to tell Him that we need a lamb, that we need this lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take our place, to keep on going to God with His word, with His promises, with His invitations, pointing to His word and, and praying that God would answer your prayer that you too would know that you are saved, that you too would know that your sins have been, through, been forgiven through the Lord Jesus Christ. The congregation, I want to end by mentioning one other part of the Passover evening, which I've not covered so far. Not only was the Passover lamb to be killed, not only was its blood to be collected and to be applied to the doorframe, but the Israelites were also to eat this lamb. And the reason they were to eat this lamb is that they would be fed by it. They'd be nourished. This lamb that God is providing is not just a lamb that saves, but also a lamb that sustains, that, that gives us strength to go through this life. And the same is true of, of Christ. We do not just go to Christ to be forgiven of our sins. You don't just go to have our guilt removed and then say, okay, I can go through life living the way I want to live. 
That when we go to Christ, we go also to be, to be nourished, to be fed by him. Now to, to eat this lamb does not mean that we can somehow physically eat Christ. But to be fed by this lamb means that, that day after day we keep on going back to God and to his word. That day after day we remind ourselves of, of what Christ has done, his finished work, and his promise to, to be with us, to lead us, to uphold us. We keep on going back to have our faith strengthened, to be encouraged, to be equipped for the Christian life. Well, during that first Passover celebration in Egypt, the true believers among the Israelites, they didn't just see a lamb, but in this lamb they saw a picture of Christ, the Savior that they needed, the Savior to whom they were looking and waiting for. And we today can look back, not just at that lamb in Exodus 12, but we can look back and see the descriptions of, of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You can see him described in all his beauty, in all his fullness, so that we too can be encouraged, so that we too can be nourished. As we have begun a new week, let us take refuge behind the blood of this Lamb. Let us be fed as we consider Christ, his person and his work. And let us worship God for his grace, his mercy, his kindness, and giving a lamb to hell-worthy sinners. Amen. Let's sing in response to 293, 293, all three stanzas.
Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, Lord, we come unto thee again. Lord, we thank thee for thy word. And even in the Old Testament, this picture that we have of salvation being accomplished and applied. Lord, we thank thee that thou hast sent thy Son, thy beloved Son, to be a lamb, a lamb who was slain, a lamb who shed his blood so that sinners like us can be saved. And we thank thee that thou hast so abundantly provided for us in all of our needs. We praise thee, Lord, that also many who are here can can know that by thy grace and by thy work we can have comfort, we can have hope because of what Christ has done. Lord, we pray also in a special way for those who are still living without Christ as their Savior. Lord, that their eyes may be open to their great need, that that would draw them unto thyself, that that would lead them by thy word and by thy spirit. And Lord, that's as a result, everyone who is here may come to know and to love and to trust in Christ. We pray that that would be with us in this week. Help us as we go through it, as we do our work, as we go to school, as we perhaps are retired or dealing with illnesses and bound up in our homes. Or help us to meditate more on Christ. Help us to be fed through all that Christ has done. Lord, equip us for the Christian life. Lord, please be with us. Keep us from sin. Keep us from evil. And give us a love for Thee. And we ask all these things for Christ's sake alone. Amen.